It looks like I'm a little early. Uh, that's okay. People are still making their ways, way out. That's okay. Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> that's all right. I, I, I usually don't respond when people say that either, so it's, it's not a big deal. Um, thank you, Joshua. I appreciate that. I now feel welcomed and ready to go. Uh, well, my name is Zach, and uh, if you are visiting here or you somehow... That sounds very arrogant. Um, I'm Zach. I'm the associate minister here. I do a lot of things. And uh, this morning I am preaching a sermon uh, of my choosing. Um, what? I'm looking at the kid, look, the kid notes. I was about to say, what kind of things would you see in a kingdom? Um, <laughs> tigers. Uh, yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> well, good morning. The, uh, the great American author... Mark Twain, uh, when asked to give advice to uh, young and aspiring writers, once quipped that the difference between the almost right word and the right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Our words can be so close yet so far apart in meaning. Uh, another example of this is the, uh, the somewhat Silly question. Uh, which is heavier, a ton of feathers or a ton of bricks? And of course, if we mean an actual ton defined as 2,000 pounds, then the weights are identical. Uh, but the f- fun of this question, if you can really call it fun, is that this is not the only or even the typical way we use the word ton. It usually means something much looser, like a lot. In which case, a lot of bricks would almost certainly weigh more than a lot of feathers. Or imagine, for instance, uh, breadwinners. If they were really being awarded with bread for a job well done. Or imagine if a bunch of people in suits spent all day trying to climb a real ladder, a a corporate ladder, if you will. Um, Or suppose your house was nothing more than a roof over your head. While it might be amusing to picture these things literally, what they actually mean isn't a straightforward replacement for something else. While the difference may not be as big as that between a lightning bolt and a lightning bug, climbing the corporate ladder says more than receiving a promotion. A roof over our heads, a house, and a home may all describe the same thing, but they're doing it differently. They're highlighting different aspects. And these slight differences in meaning don't just make language less boring. They make it more effective. And for the most part, we're able to keep all of these competing meanings straight. Now, my hunch and my concern is that we treat the kingdom of God as if it were a figure of speech. We think and we act as though the kingdom is something, anything, Other than a kingdom. But the kingdom of God is not a figure of speech. There is a kingdom and there is a king. And when we put this essential piece of Christianity into its place, we will find that living whole, full, integrated lives as Christians makes a lot more sense. Many Christians are uncertain how or why to live as Christians because we are missing the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is not a figure of speech. Uh, We're going to pray. I'm actually going to, I'm reading 
a prayer more or less that I've copied from somewhere else. But we're going to pray, and I'm going to pray these words and mean every one of them. Um, So would you pray with me? Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves, falling down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that the the heat of persecution doesn't burn it and doesn't make it wither, and that our worldly cares and concerns don't choke it out like thorns. Instead, God, a seed sown in good ground, may your word produce 30, 60, or 100 times over as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Would you open your Bibles with me to Mark 1, 14 and 15? Uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15, and it'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in one of the seats uh, in front of you. Um, Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this. Now, after John, that is John the Baptist, which one of our one of our young people this morning pointed out John the Baptist, which is just wonderful. But now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the the first thing for us to do this morning is to see that the kingdom of God is in fact an essential piece of Christianity. And you can hardly do better than begin with the gospel of Mark. While the Gospel of Mark comes second in the order of the New Testament, it is, in all likelihood, the earliest of the Gospels, which makes it some of the earliest written information we have about Jesus. And here, right away, on Jesus' own lips, we have proclamations of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. But it's not just that these words show up here so early in the story Because the actual structure of Mark suggests that these two verses serve as a reference point for the rest of the gospel. They frame everything that follows. So what picks up in Mark 1.16 when Jesus calls the first disciples or the many miracles Jesus goes on to perform, all of that is meant to be understood in the light of these verses. of Jesus' kingdom call to repent and believe. So these few verses in Mark demonstrate, excuse me, these few verses in Mark demonstrate that the kingdom of God is important. But I don't want to convince you that the kingdom is important. I want you to see that it is essential, that the gospel, the good news without the kingdom is a contradiction. It makes as much sense as vegetarian meatballs, which I, I remember seeing vegetarian meatballs as like a 10 year old. And that memory is a lot. It's like it's there. It's like not leaving. It makes as much sense as vegetarian meatballs. How can you call something a meatball when it doesn't have any meat? It doesn't make sense in the same way. We shouldn't call our message a gospel if it is utterly devoid of the kingdom. And to drive that point home, we're going to quickly look at the the openings of the first five books of the New Testament. So we're going to stay in Mark, but let's just go ahead and look at Mark 1-1 together. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The words in this one sentence are all primed to point you to a king and his kingdom. First, the word gospel itself carries kingdom undertones, if not 
overtones. Now, many of us probably know this already, but just so we're all on the same page, there are, after all, kids in the room. The word gospel means good news. Now, when King Saul is killed in the book of First Samuel, Saul's enemies spread the good news of his death. When David's son Absalom, who's been trying to steal King David's throne and is a threat to the king, when he is killed in 2 Samuel, messengers bring the good news to David. In the book of Isaiah, as Isaiah prophesies of the Lord's coming salvation in Isaiah 52, verse 7, he says this. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In the Greek Old Testament, each one of these instances of good news could just as well be translated gospel. And in every instance, what kind of news is it? It is news about kings and kingdoms. It is a declaration of victory over enemies. This isn't, you can save 15% or more on your car insurance, good news. The good news of Isaiah 52 is that your God reigns. That's what it says, the good news, your God reigns. Or your God is king. The very word gospel suggests a king and a kingdom. The word Christ does the same thing. Christ is a title. Again, most of us probably know this, but it's a title, not a name. And it means anointed one, which here in this context means king. Because the kings of Israel were anointed with oil. So King Saul, he's coming up again. King Saul is called the Lord's anointed in 1 Samuel 24, 6, which could be read as the Lord's Christ. The term Christ referred to kings. And it only grew in significance as it became attached to God's promises for a future king who would rule in righteousness forever. And last but not least, still looking at Mark 1, Son of God also suggests a king. To be sure, it suggests much more than that. But the Son of God was a royal title. Second Samuel 7.14 says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Here in 2 Samuel, God is promising to David that an offspring of David will not only be king forever, but he will be a son of God. Now, Psalm 2 ties these things together as well. It poetically brings together the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2-2 with the Lord's king in Psalm 2-6 with the son of God in Psalm 2-7. We are meant... As we read Mark, we are meant to be looking for a king and his kingdom. We are meant to ask what kind of king, what kind of kingdom. But it's not just the gospel of Mark. Because the gospel of Matthew opens with a genealogy tracing Jesus' lineage back to King David. Immediately afterward, we're shown the, the jealous fury of King Herod who seeks to destroy, to kill the newborn king because Herod knows it's bad business for a king to have rivals to his throne. Luke is equally clear that Jesus is king in Luke 1, 32 and 33, saying this, He will be great, that's Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
the son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. That's the gospel of Luke. The gospel, according to John, also quickly identifies Jesus as a king. He's called the son of God by John the Baptist in John 134. He's called the Christ by Andrew, Peter's brother, in John 141. And he's called the king of Israel by Nathaniel in John 149. Then as the gospels come to a close, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we turn the page into Acts and the action once again opens with the kingdom in focus. In Acts 1-3, Luke is describing Jesus' activity between the resurrection and the ascension as 40 days of speaking about the kingdom of God. That's Acts 1-3. Then... As the action continues, at the ascension, the disciples ask Jesus in Acts 1-6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There are many, many things that the disciples miss. Lots of things that the disciples get wrong. There are things that the disciples will continue to get wrong, even with the benefit of the Holy Spirit. But they didn't miss this. They understood At some level that Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, had come to establish a kingdom. The kingdom is not a nice addition or added benefit of the gospel. It is not an implication of the gospel. It is part and parcel of the gospel. Because the good news is your God reigns. And what we tend to focus on, and we do this for very good reason, but we tend to focus on how it is that God becomes your God and how he becomes my God. Jesus reconciles sinners to God by his blood. Enemies of God rebelling against him in our sin, we have been forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. There is no gospel apart from that truth. But just like you would never imagine the gospel without the cross, you should never imagine the gospel without the kingdom. The good news is our God reigns. Each word completely indispensable. And our Bibles continually put the kingdom in front of our eyes and in our ears. Yet, we we miss the significance of the kingdom for a couple of reasons. One of them, I think is we make the opposite mistake of the disciples in Acts 1. Jesus is about to leave, and they ask, are you going to reinstate the kingdom right now? Which is a very reasonable request. It's a very reasonable question. After all, Jesus had just proven himself to be stronger than Rome. His victory over death was also a victory over the Roman power that had crucified him in the first place. And the Jews were more than ready to be rid of the oppressive pagan Roman Empire. But the disciples were expecting things too soon. And they were expecting things far too small. But now, after nearly 2,000 years of waiting, we're probably a lot less likely to think the kingdom is coming right now. And instead, we're prone to see it coming much, much later in the future, if we ever really consider it at all. And in doing so, we're expecting things too late. And we might even be expecting things that aren't small enough. 
If you remember in Mark 1.15, of course you do, it was only a few minutes ago. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Not that it's coming, it is here. In Matthew 12.28, responding to uh, a group that was trying to discredit him, Jesus, having performed many miracles, says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is has come upon you. The implication being, the kingdom of God has come. Now, if you imagine the kingdom of God as Christ's glorious and triumphant return from heaven to earth, which it is, that's a very big deal. Don't get me wrong. That is the coming of the kingdom. But if that's all you think about, then it's very possible for you to miss the kingdom of God that shows up in the miracles. And if you don't think you have ever witnessed a miracle... Look around this room. And I mean it because I, I can see whether you're looking around or not. That any one of us, that any of us have come to Christ, that any of us have been transformed by God, given new hearts and new lives, is miraculous. It is a miracle. The kingdom is at hand. The question is whether or not your idea of the kingdom is big enough and close enough to fit what's happening here and now into it. So that's one way I think we, we, we get this wrong uh, or we miss it and we get confused about it. Another way, and this is a much smaller and maybe less likely, but I think still worth addressing. Another way we, we, we kind of miss the significance of the kingdom is we take a verse like John eighteen thirty six, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We take that too far. <laughs> When Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world, we take him to mean that not only is his kingdom not of this world, but it is so different from anything in this world that it's actually not even a kingdom. But that just can't be squared with the piles and piles of Bible verses that tell us plainly that Jesus is a king. Even if his kingdom is different, and it is, it is still a kingdom. Lastly, We miss mentions of the kingdom and its significance because we treat it like a figure of speech. We imagine that the kingdom is a fancy or old-fashioned or more biblical way of saying salvation. Rather than describing a kingdom with a king that is itself the content and the context of that salvation. For example, in Mark 10 verses 14 and 15, Pretty well-known verses. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Chances are very good that you have read this verse and that you have read the words kingdom of God. But I would bet you have understood in their place that you have read into their place salvation. And more specifically, you're probably thinking about justification, which is the word we use to talk about our approval with and before God. We are justified. That is, we are declared righteous. We are approved by God according to the demands of God in Jesus Christ. He has made atonement for our sins by his blood on the cross, and by this we are saved. That's our justification. But is our justification the same as the kingdom of God? No. But when we boiled the gospel down to nothing more than justification... And don't get me wrong, justification is vitally important. But when it becomes everything and the only thing, our Christianity will be weaker for it. 
If everything is about being made right with God, which again, to repeat myself, is vitally important. It is vitally important that I am in good standing with the God of the universe. It is vitally important that I am forgiven and reconciled and not his enemy. But if everything is about being made right with God, and I know, because the gospel tells me so, that my good works are never good enough, and it's only through grace that I'm justified, then good works become awfully confusing. What place do they have? What are they good for if they can't make me right with God? Finding the kingdom in the gospel, or, or putting it back where it belongs, gives us room to stretch our legs as Christians and run. It gives us space to work with our hands. After all, there is an entire kingdom. Now to help us think about the way this all fits together, I want you to think about marriage, to think about a marriage. With any marriage, you have the wedding day, and then you have everything that comes after. Even if the wedding itself is is as private and small as can be, It's still important that the promises between husband and wife are made and recognized by someone. And based upon that recognition of that promise, a man and woman are pronounced husband and wife. But their marriage has only just begun. While the wedding is foundational and important and often a wonderfully joyful occasion, a marriage is not defined by the wedding. It is, it it helps define a marriage, but it is not the definition of marriage. And people, at least healthy and sane ones, don't tend to get married just to have a wedding. They get married for everything that comes after. The wedding too, but for everything that comes after. Again, the, the, the getting married part is so obviously fundamental to marriage that it's a bit silly to say. There is no marriage without the getting married. But marriage is much more than getting married. The gospel is like marriage. Justification is like the wedding day. It's when we say, God is my God and I am his. And more than just saying it, it actually happens. God is our God and we are his people. But justification isn't for its own sake any more than a wedding is for its own sake. We are justified in order to enjoy the God who is king and to live in his kingdom. Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6 says this. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are freed from our sins by his blood And made into a kingdom. Now the kingdom of God is God's loving rule and merciful power exercised in people and creation. And that kingdom is big enough for eternal souls. But it's also big enough for tying shoes and busting dust bunnies and doing homework, baking cookies and barbecue, looking at spreadsheets and playing on a swing set. And I say the kingdom is big enough for those small, seemingly unspiritual things because the kingdom is concerned with life. And those things, those small things, are the things of life. The good news is bigger than what happens to you after you die. 
The good news is that your God reigns right now and that after you die, you will live again in an even better, more perfect kingdom. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do can bring glory to God. Not as a matter of justification, not as a matter of making yourself approved by God, but as a matter of honoring your king as a good citizen, as a matter of caring for your neighbors in the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God fills our lives with significance and glory. Or you might say that the kingdom swallows your life up into something bigger and grander, transforming the mundane into the miraculous. The miraculous where God is truly at work. You can eat a bowl of cereal to the glory of God. Taking care of the body he gave you honors Christ and his kingdom. Appreciating God's handiwork and getting that cereal to you is an act of worship. It is a complicated process to get food from a field into a truck and all the stops along the way into your bowl in your house. And God is overseeing that as king. Paying for that cereal provides other people made in the image of God with resources they need for life. And all of this is drawn out by the reality of the kingdom of God. You can clean toilets for the glory of God. You provide clean spaces, whether it's for your family or guests. You show hospitality and care, which are important virtues, vital virtues in God's kingdom. Use your imagination. You can stock groceries, you can sell insurance, you can design cars or locks or software to the glory of God. You can wash a never-ending mountain of dishes, wash and fold a never-ending stream of laundry, write letters, make phone calls, cook casseroles, order delivery, all as acts of service and worship because Jesus Christ is king. And as king, he cares not just about what happens when you die, but what happens while you live. So much so that he is sure to make you live again after you die. And that time your life will be forever. The kingdom of God is real. It is very real. And it is at hand. And it might not be here yet fully, but it's forever. The kingdom of God will never end. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to see your kingdom, God. Help us as we consider these things uh, to not swing too far one way or the other. Um, that we're not so sure of the kingdom, that everything is the kingdom and everything is as great as it could be because when tragedy strikes, and it does, well, we, we will just be wrecked. Uh, but help us at the same time to realize the kingdom is, is much nearer than we can sometimes think. And, and while we do hope and long for the second coming of Christ and, and the, the, the perfection of the kingdom, there are benefits for us here and now for us to enjoy. As we look across a room like this, Father, we, we see the kingdom is here. We see people who possess your Holy Spirit, who are filled with you, who are being made more and more like you, conformed into the image and likeness of your son. And that's what the kingdom looks like. 
Father, I pray that as we consider these things, it would allow us as Christians to connect dots in our lives. That there's more to the kingdom than preaching. That you are concerned with the things of life. You are concerned with the way we love each other as part of your kingdom. And that is part of the good news of the gospel. That you are making us a people who loves each other, who cares for one another, and bear one another's burdens. God, I pray that, as we prayed at the beginning, that the seed sown by your word would grow. And that you would do what you uh, promised to do uh, in your word. Growing us, maturing us, making us more like your son. And bringing the kingdom uh, nearer and nearer as we long for the day that your son Jesus Christ returns. It's in his name we pray. Amen.